This is Chad Swimmer with the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. Paul Schulman is with me. And hey, this is Paul Schulman here. Well, we have a ton of stuff to fill in, and we're not going to be able to get to it all. But I would like to say, just as an update on what's happening on the ground in Jackson, that there is no logging that we know of happening anywhere in the 78 square miles of Jackson State Forest. We are really thankful to all the direct activists for that. And we also have two timber harvest plans that are in limbo. They are have not been approved, and they don't seem to be on the road to approval because of the many hundreds of public comments that you all were submitted. So we are going to be talking about timber harvest on the ground and timber harvest on paper. Right now we're going to go to an interview that I did last week with retired logger Nick Parrish, and he has turned into a conservationist, and he'll tell you why. A retired logger who spent 40 years in the woods of Mendocino County. Thanks for joining me, Nick. You're welcome, Chad. How are you doing today? Quite well, thanks. Can you tell us how you first came to the county? Well, I was in high school down in uh, Santa Monica, and some friends had bought a ranch in Navarro and wound up coming up here working for the summer, and I stayed. Why'd you stay? Didn't particularly like the city too much. I grew up in New York City and Los Angeles. And how did you end up becoming a logger? It was going to feed me. That uh, you know needed to go to work. I was you know just a teenager. Did you know how to use a chainsaw? I started out cutting firewood, hauling it down to the Bay Area um, before I turned eighteen. Um, need to be eighteen to work in the commercial commercial logging. And who did you first work for? A small uh, operator out of Ukiah by the name of Andy Munkus. And what did you do? Started out on the ground floor, you know, uh, working landing, setting chokers, uh, then worked with uh, uh, timber fallers. Back in those days, the timber was so big, the tools were extensive, they were huge, and you had a lot of them. Fallers generally worked as a, a set, uh, two two fallers together, one bucking the logs and the other one falling them, falling the trees. And uh, how big of a saw were you using those days? You know, the powerheads were, you know, somewhat comparable to the big uh, uh, saws today. Um, in a way, they're, they're a lot heavier. They did not have any vibration isolation. The bars, you know, 36 inches was the smallest we ever used, uh, you know, 36 to 60 inch bars. Wow. Uh, when was this? Uh, 1972, I think, maybe 73. And so you were working for an outfit out of Ukiah, but were you working on the coast? Uh, Upper Big River. Upper Big River. Mm-hmm. Accessed off of Highway 20 at, the, uh, at Camp 20, the Red Schoolhouse. Uh-huh. And what kind of trees were you logging? Well, old growth, strictly old, old growth, yeah. Wow. Um, uh, so up past Camp 20 uh, to the north, to the south? South. The river right there by Camp 20 is uh, the north fork of uh, Big River. Yeah. And you were doing these, this was on Jackson State property, right? No, no, this was on uh, Louisiana Pacific, uh, the old uh, Union Lumber Company uh, property. Yeah, yeah. Were you also cutting Doug fir in those days? Yeah, there was a, a certain amount of Doug fir mixed in with the redwood. Uh, in the old growth forest, the uh, redwood predominates. Uh, unlike the second growth forest, you have a, a higher percentage of, uh, well, it's mixed. In the old growth, you know, there's a fairly low percentage of Doug fir, maybe 20%, 25%. And how big were these trees? Huge. Huge. Giant, ginormous. You know, I mean, uh, 
50,000 board feet in one tree. Wow. Or more. Wow. Was it scary? Well, I don't know. Um, that's hard to answer. Uh, you know, logging is pretty tricky in itself. you got to be focused. Uh, scary? Yeah, it was just work, Chad. You know, I don't really know how to answer that. What, for you, were the best things about being a logger? Well, it kept you healthy. Um, paid my bills. Uh, you got to work outdoors all day long, greet the sunrise in the morning. Um, loved the work. Didn't really like the end result, but loved the work. Hmm. What kind of money were you making? I started out at $4 an hour. Do you know what the minimum wage was then? I have no idea. Once you were falling trees, were you working by the hour or by the tree? Uh, Per thousand board feet. Per thousand board feet. Mm -hmm. Do you know if people are still working that way? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. And that's the fallers. The timber fallers, yeah. So choke setters and yarders. Yeah, they're on the hour, uh, by the hour. They're by the hour. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're not in favor of timber harvest at this point, but that's a nuanced statement. So can uh, I'd like to hear what's changed your mind and heart and also what's the nuance well it was obvious many years ago to me anyway that uh, we were over harvesting what we were doing was not sustainable and you know here 40 years later it's proven to be true the timber that we're harvesting now is uh, decreased in size uh, the second growth redwood is not anything at all like old growth redwood it doesn't have the same proprieties. Uh, it rots, uh, bugs will eat it, you know. Uh, you don't see second growth fences around that, you know, are uh, 50, 60, 80 years old, as you did with old growth fences. Did you see while you were logging, say in the 70s, uh, that the stock of old growth was running out? Oh, obviously, yeah, yeah. No, I, you know, the equipment was getting smaller trees were getting smaller uh, you know the transition was happening as I was uh, as I started in the woods you know from old growth to second growth and now you know we're doing third and fourth growth when did you start working in Jackson State oh, I think it was uh, 1980 1981 uh, about there and uh, were you who were you working for then uh, Schuster's for Schuster's out of Willits did you work all over the the state forest yeah yeah i did so some in uh, big river drainage uh, some in chamberlain uh casper creek um all over what kind of trees were you cutting then second growth, second growth. Uh, there, there was some old growth mixed in come to think of it uh, did a couple old growth patches out on highway 20 um james creek yeah yeah if i were to say you don't believe in timber harvest anymore. And as you said earlier, well, you know, we, there are fine points to that statement. Can you talk about that? Just like everything that uh, involves the environment at this point in time and uh, human history on this planet, uh, we're doing something that the planet isn't real happy about. And so we're changing the environment, we're changing the climate. So we have to kind of look at some other alternative ways 
to accomplish what we need as a species. What do you think would be alternatives to to lumber? Oh boy, um, I, that I have no answer for. I really don't. Suck up the garbage patch out in the middle of the Pacific? Use that for building houses? <laughs> I have heard about building with poles and that a lot of the smaller trees are actually, especially uh, considering the state of the forest now, are actually much stronger structurally because they're tighter grained than the big trees. Do you know anything about pole construction? No, I don't. Another alternative that uh, I think has some merit is hay bale construction. Um, you know, hay can grow that. Uh, hemp could could work, I suppose, as a wood fiber. No, you know, that, that's... We're going to switch over now. We have a lot more to listen to. And I just wanted to say that that is Nick Parrish, a retired logger. And we have the full interview available on our website at mendocinotrailstewards.org at the media links page. Right now, I'm going to play a new segment. It's a very short segment called Second Grade Science Report. But after that, we're going to be hearing from Matt Simmons, the staff attorney at Epic in Humble. And he's going to walk us through the timber harvest plan process and um, how we can do comments. So what I encourage you to do, if you're listening and you're interested, is to go to your computer and, again, go to our website. And if you go to the the top, the news and alerts, and the drop down where it says timber harvest comments, that you will see a timber harvest plan flow sheet that you can follow along with Matt. Because this is a pretty complicated process, and it's... Um, a little frustrating for those of us who are trying to comment and trying to make some sense of everything. So we've got one minute and 22 seconds of the second grade science report. Welcome to the second grade science report. I'm here talking to Chipmunk. How are you doing, Chipmunk? Good. Chipmunk is presently taking refuge in a pillow fort. Why are you in a pillow fort? Because I like it. Uh, you chose the song we're listening to. Why did you choose this song? Because I like it. And what is the song we're listening to? It is Goods of Rixton. By who? By The Clash. Oh, well, thank you. Right now, we are actually talking about science, not about music. So I am wondering, why are trees important? Because they reduce carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere. And what happens if there's too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Then there's no air to breathe, and that's not very good. That's not very good at all, is it? No. And how old are you? I'm seven. You're seven. Well, there you have it. Truth for the world from the mouths of babes. I'm not a baby! Listen to that. As you could probably tell, poor Chipmunk had a stuffed nose. So we are now going to Matt Simmons, the staff attorney at Epic. This is Chad Swimmer, and I'm here via cyberspace with my friend Matt Simmons, the staff attorney from the Environmental Protection Information Center in Humboldt, California. He loves working to defend Northern California's forests and ecosystems and has been at it harder than just about anyone on the Jackson issue. 
Matt has prepared a little flow chart to go along with part of our talk today. So pull down this chart. How you do it is go to mendocinotrailstewards.org. Go to the News and Alerts drop-down tab. Go to THP status sheet and how to comment the THP approval process flowchart. Thanks for joining us, Matt. How are you doing? I'm good, Chad. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for being here. So my first question is, it's about the timber harvest plan commenting process. So when I first got into forest activism, I was under the impression that commenting on timber harvest plans, THPs, was meaningless. I've learned otherwise in a large part because of your work and that of EPIC. Can you elaborate on the effects and the limitations of the public comment process? Sure. Yeah, so our public comment process is really sort of the bedrock of American environmental law. And it's this idea that like the public should have a say in what sort of decisions are getting made around them and that they have you know either expertise or opinions that deserve to be heard in the official record on a decision. And so whenever the state government makes a decision, they usually have to have a public comment period where they say to the public, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you know about this area. Tell us what you think about the plan. Um, and then when they make the final decision, they actually are required to respond to all of the substantive comments. So if you say, like, I know something about this creek that the planners didn't put in the plan, they have to respond and say, like, either why you're wrong or like, oh, you're right, we made this change. And so that that's, I'd say, the first thing that's really good about public comments is that this requirement to respond makes them do the work that, like, they should have done in the first place, right? So... If you read a plan that's like really spotty and really doesn't contain a lot of good information, you can add that information into the plan by submitting a public comment. And they are like legally required to go back and think about what you said. Now they aren't always gonna do that. And that's where the second thing about public comments come in. If you if they make a decision anyway that you don't like, you can sue them, but you can only sue them about stuff that you said in your public comments. Hmm. This is a it's basically to like take the the government side, they're saying it's unfair for you to sue me about something that you didn't tell me about during the public comment period. Like, how was I supposed to know that I was doing something bad? And the, the judges and the courts agree that that's how it should work. And so if you have any sort of intention of stopping or, or slowing down a project, you have to make public comments because otherwise you're barred from litigating. And then the third thing I'll just say is that even though it's not like a legal element, having a lot of public comments on a plan tells the planners that the public is really concerned about an issue and that they need to like think hard about what they're doing. You know, just like there's a big difference between a plan that gets submitted and only gets one comment and a plan that gets submitted and gets a thousand comments. And it, it doesn't have to be all like done by a scientist, you know, that just there's like a power in numbers there. There's the Little North Fork of the Big River Timber Harvest Plan, which you submitted lengthy comments on. And uh, we have over 100 comments submitted to um, CAL FIRE on this plan. And some of them were just people writing, hey, I am really unhappy you're doing this. One public comment had no words at all. It was just about 50 pictures. And, you know, those, from what I've learned from you, aren't litigatable comments, but they do show that the preponderance of public opinion is not necessarily for this plan. Yeah. So 
Can you briefly guide us through this lengthy THP process from the inception to the approval, or as we're hoping, the denial? So now is the time to take out your flowchart, pull it up on your screen, and Matt, guide us through it, please. Yeah, um, so every THP starts uh, with the plan being submitted by a registered professional forester, um, or RPF as it's shortened to. This is a, a person who went to school for forestry. They got a you know a specialization in it, and they have written a plan that sort of lays out everything that they're planning to do. State law requires them to organize the plan in a certain way. Once you know where to look for things, it's always the same in every plan. Section one is like a brief overview. Section two contains more specific information about the exact kinds of forestry going on. Section three talks a bit about impacts and about alternatives analysis. Section four is the cumulative impact section. Um, five is archaeology, and it just keeps going on like that. So they, they'll submit the plan. Then CAL FIRE, which is the state agency that's in charge of reviewing these plans, will set up a, um, a pre-harvest inspection, which is basically they're actually going to go out on the land and look at the plan and make sure that everything that the forester said that they're going to do is really what they're planning to do. So they'll usually do one of those, and then they have it's called a review team. So the state law requires CAL FIRE to not only look at it themselves, but also to ask the other state agencies that regulate the environment to look at the plan as well. So CAL FIRE is required to ask the Department of Fish and Wildlife, but they have to ask all of them if they have any thoughts about this plan. And they all get together and they have what's called first review, where they they provide their comments on the plan. And they say, oh, you, you missed something here, or oh, you, can you change this to say this? And so then that happens. And then usually, but not always, there's a second review where they get back together and look at all the comments that have already been submitted by the agencies and say, okay, yes, you, you fixed it all, we're good to go. And sometimes there's not. And then basically the, the comment, the public comment deadline, so your last chance to comment is 10 days after the final interagency review. Sort of a moving target, right? Because you don't know how many interagency reviews they're gonna have or when they're gonna be scheduled. And that's why when someone asks me like, when is the comment period gonna close? I almost always have to say like, I don't know because I don't know when they're gonna have their final review and it'll be 10 days after that. There's something that you pointed out last spring that I didn't realize. This is that when the when the public comment period closes, that doesn't mean you can't submit comments anymore. Is this correct? Yeah. So you can still submit a comment. They are not legally required to respond to comments submitted after the close of the period. The uh, efficacy of those comments is greatly reduced. Um, but I, I, I almost consider it like a protest comment. Like you're saying like, hey, you know, it's like messed up that you didn't address this, even though I didn't get to it in time. And that's particularly true in, in you know, with like Casper 500, right, where the common period was during the first two months of the pandemic and life was so crazy that it, it's sort of unfair to assume that everyone would have time to, to participate in a public comment process like that. I, you know, I said to you and I also myself was like, you know what, we should submit comments and just say in those comments, the reason why we're submitting these late is because of COVID. And, you know, if you were fair, you would listen to us. And, you know, government agencies aren't fair. So I don't know what they'll do with that. But it's worth a shot. And I think it it shows that agency and a judge maybe in the future that, like, you were serious about this and you you cared. 
and you know that's not like a legal requirement but human beings are not like legal robots that only <laughs> apply the law without thinking about other factors and so i i don't i don't think you should ignore those other things so right now if we all wanted to submit 100 or 500 comments on Casper 500 and Little North Fork Big River and Mitchell Creek and say, hey, we are not happy. These, you know, public comment period is closed, but we don't want these to happen. It would be easier. We wouldn't have to research our comments. We'd just, you know, write one paragraph, but they'd still see that there's, you know, some large amount of people who are protesting. Yeah. So there are a few things that I wanted to back up on. And one is this idea that if you want to litigate an approved plan, you can't do it unless you have submitted a comment that you feel they didn't address well and correctly. So if I were just a standard person with not much knowledge of a timber harvest plan, and I wanted to try to figure out what I could do, how I could comment and make it something that would be relevant for, say, Epic to, to work with later, what would I do? Good question. So there's a, there's a couple of sort of key things that a CEQA attorney and that's the CEQA is the California Environmental Quality Act, and that's the law that allows you to sue on these projects. This is something that I stress to people is that like there's no like inherent right to defend the environment from the government. It's a law that the government passed that says like we'll let you sue us sometimes. <laughs> CEQA has a couple of different, you know, sort of strategies that CEQA attorneys use. One is if there's information missing. If if there's some sort of you know, serious flaw or something left out of the plan that like a reasonable person would have assumed was in that plan. A classic example is like you're building like a nuclear test, a uh, nuclear uh, reactor, and you didn't mention that it's on top of like an earthquake fault zone anywhere in the environmental documents. Like Diablo Canyon, where Naomi Wagner and my father protested in the 1980s and 90s. A judge can look at that and say, yeah, they really should have talked about that somewhere. It's weird that they left that out. You have to go back and redo this. Another type of comment you can make is about cumulative impacts. And so this is a requirement that these timber harvest plans talk about past projects in the same area and how you know the cumulative impact of all these projects in the same area add up to something sort of greater than the sum of its parts. And you know, in Jackson, we have a lot of plans that are in areas that have already had timber cuts. And so you're able to sort of make this argument that like, you know, you're not really thinking about the what the impacts are of just going back into this forest over and over again and what that does. The cumulative impact thing, is there a time frame that CEQA designates or uh, distance? For instance, if we're talking about the Casper 500 plan, well, seven years before, there was a similar plan that was very close to it. It didn't overlap entirely, but it's right there. And if you look around the watershed, there are pretty serious there have been a lot of plans that have been carried out within five air miles. And does that constitute cumulative impact? Yeah. Um, so in terms of, so, so the answer to both is like, no, like there isn't like a set one, but there are sort of patterns that they follow. Um, I think, you know, for most foresters, like history began in like 1860, and so they're they're not going to go back any further than that if they even go back that far. Um, but they, you know, they sort of see all environmental impacts of have, as having originated after contact uh, colonization and contact. Um, and so, you know, most timber harvest plans will say this area was logged a lot. 
in like the 1870s and then here are the future entries and they didn't keep super good records back then so it's sort of sometimes hard to say exactly who did what when even though if you, you know for sure it happened right because it, it used to all be old growth but um so sometimes it's a little vague in terms of distance um they tend to focus on watersheds um so that's one sort of key area uh, I know for most um, biological impacts, so impacts like animals and wildlife, they say 0 0.7 miles is like the distance to think about. That is just like a random number that they drew out of nowhere, but it's what they use in all the timber <laughs> harvest plants. It's not like set down in the rules or the law anywhere. It's just sort of they they came up a while ago with that as the number to use, and they just keep doing it. Um, I think in our epic comments, we said, like, that's crazy that you didn't think at all about this number. So that's another example is if they choose a bad time frame or area, you can say in your comments, this is a bad time frame and area. Please explain to me why you chose it. And then they have to justify it in their response. I wanted to talk about the period before the timber harvest plan is actually submitted. And I, I really can't speak to what happens on um, industrial timberland. But in Jackson State, it seems like they take a few years to develop a timber harvest plan, possibly a whole year's time for a forester. And these foresters are getting paid you know, 100000 plus a year. And so with their benefits, that's a cost to us of – the California public of a hundred plus thousand dollars to develop these timber harvest plans. So we know that they are developing plans in Covington Creek, Hare Creek drainage. It's very close to people's houses. They're developing plan, a plan in the north part of Jackson, Camp 8 South. And that is a place where it's designated as late seral development. Well, the biologist came up to me and said, well, that's funny that it's already late seral. What can they do to develop it into late seral forest? which is late successionary, it's on its way to being old growth. Is there any recourse for the public when they're developing a plan that hasn't been submitted yet? There's no official recourse. So there, there's no sort of area in the law that says they have to listen to you because the law is very clear that it, it's during the sort of decision process that they, they have to listen to you. You could just reach out to them generally and just try to give them this knowledge. I don't want to say their name, but I, I know someone who has done that. They've worked with foresters on a plan before it was approved or before it was even submitted and said to them, like, this area is really special for this reason. Please avoid this area. And, you know, the, the forester isn't legally required to listen to them, but hopefully they're like decent people and they'll like listen to this sort of community concern. Um, and then, you know, JDSF has a management plan, right? And the management plan, uh, eventually will have to be redone and have new comments submitted on that plan. And sort of that's sort of where like the law says you should be talking about this sort of stuff. Like that's the management plan for the whole forest. It's like a ongoing management formula and you can comment on it to say what you would like to see or what you wouldn't like to see. In this case, it's really hard for us because we see that they're doing a lot of road work and marking before the plan is even submitted. And so they're out there spray painting trees all over the forest and plans that might not even happen and that we hope won't happen. But then we've got trees that blue rings around them all over. It's, it's really sad for some of us. It's just really heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And I think, you know, there's a lot of criticism of the our whole process because it sort of feels to people like 
these decisions are being made before they ever ask the public for input. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, they, like you said, they spend a hundred thousand dollars on it. They're, they're not hoping. I mean, they're not thinking when they make these plans, like, oh, we'll like really test this out and see if it's going to work or not. Um, it's just, that's the law we have right now. That's, that's all we, we have to rely on. Well, thank you, Matt. We are out of time. I hope to have you back again soon. And thank you for all of your diligent work to help save our forest. Yeah, happy to happy to come back. Thanks for having me. Uh, good to see you, Chad. And that was Matt Simmons, the staff attorney at the Environmental Protection Information Center in Humboldt, California. So who do we have next, Paul? Uh, we're going to talk with uh, Linda Perkins and Bill Heil about their experiences uh mostly uh, down in the Albion Nation, saving the trees down there, and, and also uh, their experience on the Jackson Advisory Group. This is very important because the Jackson Advisory Group is considered the main way that the public can put in input on our state forests. We are talking to longtime forest advocates Linda Perkins and Bill Heil. How are you all doing today? We're good. We had some rain, couldn't sunshine today, couldn't be better. Well, thanks for being here with us. So I was on the phone the other day talking to Vince Taylor, who we all know is the person who really pushed the activism in Jackson State and through his litigation was able to close down logging in Jackson from 2001 to 2009. And I told him that I would be talking to you today. And he said, oh, Bill and Linda, they were stalwarts. They, they were, they've been at it since the beginning and really steady people in this movement and so you were both involved in the albion river uprising trying to save enchanted meadow that's where you started looking at and reading timber harvest plans can you tell us about that what happened with with uh, louisiana pacific is that uh or in the enchanted meadow is that they sued us and uh we had to spend time together uh getting our defense together uh had of course a lawyer volunteered his time and that sort of thing but we had to meet a lot and in that process uh we got to linda started really dealing with timber harvest plans particularly from louisiana pacific and started reading them and and uh that whole career of her work with timber harvest plans started out of that. And, and that meant that really we were all over the county. It, we didn't confine ourselves to timber harvest plans in Albion, but whenever one came up, mm -hmm. and as we became more experienced and people got to know us, they would ask us to come help them. And at one point, uh, there was a plan on Jackson State called the Blender Soundslog Plan. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> You remember it, Chad. Very well. Up at the top of Casper. Yeah. Big lines of uh, clear-cut strips, right? That's right. right. That's right. And and so we, we helped uh, stop that, actually. They withdrew that plan in the face of community opposition. So that did not go forward. So we were commenting on plans in Jackson and in, on private timberlands. And uh, so it seemed a natural thing to... Uh, continue our activism and I, I don't remember we were on two previous uh, Jackson advisory groups before the one that started that Vince started and they were more short-lived and they were around more specific issues and uh, so they came and went more quickly I think one had to do with herbicide use 
and uh, and I can't even remember the other. But Vince's was obviously the most critically important, and that resulted in a group of us being on the Jackson Advisory Group um, from Jerry Mello. So just to remind everybody, so Jerry Mello was the mayor of Fort Bragg at the time, right? Right, and he was an ex-Georgia Pacific uh, company man, and Mike Anderson. This is Mike Anderson that is the owner of Anderson Logging Company, who had been on the JAG since the days that you were on it, and recently resigned after the trail stewards filed a conflict of interest complaint. Who were some of the others? Of course, Vince and myself and Kathy Bailey. We worked together, that group worked together, and came up with a management plan for Jackson. It took us three years, but we were certainly a diverse group of people, and of course it included Vince, and we agreed upon a plan. It wasn't what any of us wanted. We all compromised a bit, uh, but we came to something. We sent it to the Board of Forestry, and it got shelved, so that was the end of my um, tenure. It is truly sad. I know that Vince was very angry and heartbroken. He resigned from the JAG in disgust. It was interesting, I guess, because we were such a diverse group of people, and we were determined to come to something. And, and we were willing, uh, I think, to throw aside our distrust of each other, at least in the moment, and try to come up with something good that we all agreed on for the forest. I think it was a different era. I, having been out of commenting on timber harvest plans for a number of years and coming back to it, I am uh, quite honestly appalled at what I see, how much things have changed in terms of, um, oh, I guess Cal Fire being iron-fisted about what they do in the forests. Um, there's not as much opportunity for the public to have input. I think our comments mean a lot less than they once did. I think the public was listened to a lot more. And now I think it's going to take something on a whole nother order for the community and the public to make a difference than simply going through the administrative process. It's not enough. There really has to be uh, a public outcry from a lot of arenas, uh, I think, to bring this about. And I think, I think we can do it. I think we are doing it, actually. I'm feeling very optimistic about what's happening, the direction things are going. We, we've gone through CAL FIRE. They have about as much to do, uh, particularly uh, the local people, have uh, the only uh, authority they have that we don't have, the only reason they're managing it and we're not, is that they're hired by CAL FIRE to do it and told what to do. And you can't, and they have picked the JAG, so there's no place to go there. There are equals, really, as far as I can tell, in terms about what happens on Jackson State and probably don't even have as much say as we do. But uh, going to Richard Wilson and his organization, one of their goals is to separate Cal Fire from Cal Forestry. That's Richard Wilson we're talking about, the ex-director of California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, who, with Sharon Duggan, has 
an organization called Why Forests Matter that's advocating for the separation of CAL FIRE into two distinct entities. And reinstate CAL forestry. And that's a wonderful goal, and I think it fits perfectly with what's happening at Jackson now because we want to set, separate Jackson from CAL FIRE. And if we could figure out a way to, to work with Richard and that organization and shoot for changing uh, Jackson's management and its mandate, which goes back to the 1940s, uh, we've got a really big goal in front of us that could make a change that will shake, shake up the timber industry and shake up the world. And that's that's where I'm where I come from being involved with Jackson now. It's an incredible opportunity to make changes that I've been working my life to see happen. That is really inspiring to me, Bill. Thank you. I want to remind everybody that this is just an excerpt of an interview that extends over about 50 minutes and we're going to have the entirety of the interview on the Mendocino Trail Stewards website up in just a couple days among a bunch of other extended interviews, radio spots, and media links. You can find that at mendocinotrailstewards.org media links. You'll be able to hear how Linda and Bill arrived here on the coast, more about the Albion Uprising, and more about their time on the JAG. Hope you can go there and click and listen. On that note, I think we're going to go to a song, and this is a song requested by Bill and Linda. I think you're going to recognize it. Thank you guys for being with us. Thank, Thank you. you. It was fun. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome again to the Second Grade Science Report. This is Chad Swimmer, and I'm here with Chipmunk. How are you doing, Chipmunk? Good. What are we going to talk about today? Squirrels. Can you tell me the three most common members of the squirrel family that we find in Jackson State Forest? The western gray squirrel, the chipmunk, and the chickaree. Nice. And squirrels are rodents. What makes a rodent a rodent? Its teeth. What's so special about its teeth? They never stop growing. They never stop growing. What uh, would happen if a squirrel ended up being a million years old? It, well, it would stay the same unless it didn't chew. But if it didn't chew, its teeth would be really big and long. Really big and long. So what do squirrels like to eat? Um... Acorns. Acorns. And what do acorns come from? Oak trees. Oak trees. Do they come from redwoods? No. Do they come from fir trees? No. So they come from oak trees. Do you know what hack and squirt is? Yes. What is hack and squirt? Well, they hack off the bark of oak trees, and then they squirt the poison into that. And what does it do to the oak tree? It kills it. It kills it. Why are they doing this? Because the oak trees don't 
cost anything. They're not worth much money, are they? Mm-hmm. Ooh. So who else eats acorns? The Pomo people. And other Native Americans too, right? Yeah. So it's pretty terrible if they kill all the oak trees, isn't it? Hmm. Well, there you have it. More truth from the mouths of babes. I'm not a baby. For the last time. That was a bonus episode of the Second Grade Science Report. And I have an announcement to make, but I'm going to actually ask Paul about that. Paul and a couple of the other trail stewards are setting up a weekly or bi-weekly, we're going to try to do it weekly, uh, Rally for the Redwoods. Paul, can you tell us about that? Yeah, we're gonna, we've are gonna. we done this a few other times, uh, right down uh, where Fern Creek Road uh, meets Highway 1 in Casper. Uh, there's a duck pond there, and just across from the duck pond, uh, we'll be set up there with the uh, information booth, and, and uh, folks will be out on the highway with banners and flags. Um, and it's just an opportunity for us to, uh, you know, keep keep a reminder out there that um, this is what's going on right up the road and uh, hopefully people will stop by and visit with us and get some information. So that'll be happening from 10 to noon this Saturday and possibly other Saturdays after that if, if we can keep it up. Yeah, the word I have is next Saturday it will happen again. We'll see. Maybe all the way through into the winter. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, thank you, Chad. It's been You're a pleasure. Welcome. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.